0: This is part two of the How to Analyze a Deal podcast that you will have heard previously. The next important facet that I'm going to talk about is how secure either the capital, your capital, the capital growth, or the cash flow deriving from the investment is. That's a a key factor when I'm analysing any deal. I want to know that A, the, the asset's going to go up in value over time, I want to understand that you know the cash flow is is likely to come in each month. But more than that, I want to know that it's not suddenly going to drop in value or or be liquidated or, or the investment's suddenly going to disappear. So the first key element to this is splitting your income between multiple different assets and asset classes. So multiple sources of income is the The standard cliched way of describing it, but it does serve a purpose, and it's really quite pertinent when looking at different investments. It is important to diversify them somewhat. So, when you're in the growth stage and you're making high returns, usually you'll be going very, very deep and focusing on a small number of investments. But as time goes on, and you've got those streams of income and you've got those assets already secured, you'll generally want to diversify them across more assets and more asset classes. Generally, the return will be lower. But as time goes on, you'll find you're probably in a better position. Because if one of them goes wrong, or there's an issue, or there's a short term issue, the other assets will continue to provide you with income. You know, if, if, if one company goes bust, one share goes bust, the others are unlikely to. If there's some sort of problem in the property market, that lenders all have issues like they did in the credit crunch, well, it's unlikely to hit all of your properties if you've got multiple lenders. I know during the credit crunch, it certainly helped us to have multiple commercial lenders and lots of different buy-to-let lenders. If one of them got into trouble and they wanted the money back, then it was a portion of the portfolio rather than all of it. And you can usually remortgage to another one or find another way of repurposing or or rejigging the investment. So don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's a very, very important point and something that I live by. The regulatory and legal environment is important when you're looking at how secure the capital is and, and how secure the income is deriving from an asset as well. Certainly with residential property in the last few years, there's been a more negative sentiment. The public doesn't feel very good about landlords' and there's a lot of jealousy, there's the the politics of envy, as some would call it, certainly has um, become predominant in the UK. And politicians have responded, they've increased tax, and there's extra burden that's been placed on landlords, specifically with licensing and housing standards and regulation. The letting agencies are certainly being regulated more closely looks like houses of multiple occupation will all need to be licensed shortly. And the FCA have increased the stress test, which is applied to mortgages for buy-to-let. So when somebody takes a buy-to-let mortgage out, the rent needs to be a minimum of 125%, often at an interest rate of maybe five or five and a half percent. Now, lots of banks were doing that before these regulations came in anyway, because they could see them coming. And some would say that they're quite sensible. But That's something to be aware of. And I've certainly seen a shift since the credit crunch to add these increased layers of legislation and rules and regulations around residential property specifically. So I think it is good to diversify. I think it's good to have some commercial as well and some other asset classes. I'm not saying residential is all going to go wrong and it's all bad actually. Actually, we've probably had a run of more difficult times, and usually when that happens, things get easier. Commercial went through a similar stage. Pre-credit crunch, they increased property rates massively on commercial, mainly because when there was a void, when the tenant moved out of a commercial property, they introduced empty property rates, which effectively meant that every empty commercial building in the country had huge council tax liability, I think of offices that we're in, average office that maybe is big enough for 25 people, might be about three, three and a half thousand square foot. The rates on a building like that, a 300 grand building, could be 25, 30 grand a year, even when it's empty, which to me seems pretty outrageous. And of course, the same thing applies to a residential property, although the rates are much lower comparatively. Similar size residential property might be £2,000 a year council tax. But the key thing is the voids in residential property are usually much reduced versus commercial. So that was a big change for commercial landlords. In addition to that, the credit crunch came along, the internet, and generally offices and commercial buildings have been in reduced demand. I think it's been on the decline, certainly in areas around where we are in the East Midlands, less businesses want lots of space. More people are working from home, more things go out of distribution centers and warehouses, a lot of stuff's on the internet and post and mail order. So offices and and premises and retail to a lesser extent has been less in demand. And we've seen the values of those buildings drop quite significantly. So it wouldn't have been good to place all your eggs in the commercial basket either. Now, I suspect a lot of those issues have come to an end or the values have adjusted sufficiently to take account of the empty property rates and the the reduction in rent and the, the increased voids associated with some of those commercial properties. But these short to medium term changes can hurt you if you're not in lots of different asset classes. That's not to say I don't think commercial property isn't secure because I think it is. I think actually commercial and residential property in many ways are more secure than investments in the stock market or other investments. I think it's also important to have some super secure investments that might be bonds, certainly government bonds. They're they're about as safe as you can get or UK government bonds are, are usually called gilts. They're effectively loans that you give to the UK government. So they are very, very secure. Of course, the rates on those gilts are very low. I mean, some of the German and Euro ones have gone into negative territory. Certainly in in times of increased uncertainty, when gold goes up, the the price of these bonds increase as well. They can go into negative yield territory. But they are good to hold. It's good to hold a, a certain portion of your asset base in in bonds and maybe have some corporate bonds as well, some blue chip stuff. I don't generally bother with the, the junk bonds of maybe the less established and less well capitalised companies. I prefer the, the government and the, the kind of blue chip corporate bonds. I much prefer those. And then, of course, we've been talking about other asset classes like gold and like watches and like wine, which are out of the system. And you, you know, you have the the one in a hundred year Great Depression or credit crunch or whatever it is. Even if all the banks close and you know there's issues and we're fighting on the streets and you you're needing to store tins of food in your your basement. I know that's pretty far fetched, but you know, Rob has uh, suggested at times that that's a possibility. If you've got hard physical assets in your control, like gold, like watches, like wine, like maybe other commodities, maybe even cars, they're probably going to be tradable, always tradable. And they're relatively liquid. So I think it is important just to have a small percentage of your wealth in those kind of asset classes as well. Another very important facet to any investment for me is how much leverage can be applied to it. For me, leverage is the key to making money out of most asset classes. Leverage is the ability to borrow money against it. So effectively, you're using other people's money to buy the asset. Maybe you put a a relatively small deposit down. Certainly with a a buy-to-let property, maybe a commercial property, slightly less. So you'd need a bigger deposit usually. Those kind of investments are very leverageable as long as there is a tenant there, and that's that's really the main reason. One of the main reasons I love property so much. Let's say you go and buy a £100,000 house, you get a 75% mortgage on it, you put £25,000 down as a deposit and some legal fees. Let's say you've spent £30,000 to access an asset that's worth £100,000. If that asset goes up in value by 5% over a year, which is perfectly plausible, in the past few years we've had much more growth than that, but if we're just relatively careful and cautious and we say that the growth is 5%, that's a £5,000 increase in the value of the property. Well, if you've only invested £30,000 in the property versus the full £100,000, in fact, your return on capital invested on the capital side with 5% market growth is just over 16.5%. Now, 16.5% return on any investment is very very high and a lot of people would say well that's risky or that doesn't work or, or or whatever but you know that is the reality and of course on top of that you've then got the return on the income side or the cash flow side well if you've got a mortgage of course you're going to be paying mortgage interest but rates are very very low at the moment which makes leverage doubly appealing to me so if you're buying a £100,000 property and let's say it rents for £600 a month. If it rents for £600 a month and let's just say, for argument's sake, you managed to get a £75,000 mortgage on that, that at 3%, then you're going to be paying about £188 a month in mortgage interest. There'll be some other costs that come off the rent because, of course, running these properties isn't without management, maintenance, insurance and voids and things like that. But if you took another 20% off, you'd probably end up with a, a net rent before mortgage of around 500 and Then once you've taken the, the mortgage off, you've probably got a, a net income of upwards of £250 a month. Now, that's not to be sniffed at because you've only put a total of 30000 into this investment in total. If you're getting 250 a month or 3,000 a year, um, that 3,000 pounds income that you're receiving is 10% of your in- original investment. So if you add that to the 16.5% that you're getting on the capital side that I mentioned earlier on, you add those two things together, you've got a total return there of 26.5%, and that's not, you know, it's not rocket science. You're not doing anything particularly risky or not even particularly clever or or you don't need to, you don't need massive experience or any particularly high grade skills to do something like that. That's something that the the average person can do, go and buy a buy-to-let property. So buying a little terrace buy-to-let property doesn't take a, a massive amount of skill or experience. Most people can do that and apply leverage to it. And over time, As the value increases, that 30,000 that you originally invested will come back. And you know, with some deals, when you buy them cheap and you get most or all of your money back, actually, the return on capital invested can be infinite or much, much higher. There have been a lot of deals that I've done which have been 30, 40, 50, 100% cash on cash return. How much cash did I put in versus what is the total income that I've got back and the increase in capital value as a percentage of the the money that i put in originally and that cash on cash return is it can be described as return on capital invested or return on capital employed it is really my overriding metric when i'm looking at an investment There are some other asset classes that you can leverage. Clearly, commercial property is similar, but often you have to put a 40% deposit into commercial properties and they, they need to have a tenant within them already. But again, the leverage is pretty good. Value will likely increase over time along with the rent. So that can be good. But I would say the cash on cash return is usually a little bit less with commercial because primarily you can't leverage it as much. You can't borrow as much against it. And clearly with your own home, there is a major, major leverage advantage there because, because residential mortgages might go as high as 85 or even 90%. Commonly, they're a little bit lower, more like 75 or 80%. But the rates on those mortgages are really so low, it doesn't seem to make sense not to borrow a good chunk against your home. It's quite easy to get residential mortgage rates in the low twos or even high ones at the moment. And we're, I'm talking at the end of 2016. So I can't see how you wouldn't want to borrow money at 2% and then put it into a property which might yield 7, 8, 10, or as we were discussing earlier on, cash-on-cash on cash return of in excess of 25%. So it really does seem to make a lot of sense to me. There are some other asset classes which you can generally leverage quite easily. Um, if you put money into the stock market, into funds, uh, and they might be equity and bond-based funds, um, Barclays Wealth have a product whereby you, you you buy into their funds, and they will actually loan you back around sixty percent of the value of those funds, and they'll lend the money to you at two two and a half percent, and that money can then be used for further investment. So let's say you're getting an overall return average return of maybe 7% on your funds and your bonds and all that sort of stuff that you have with Barclays Wealth. Once you've borrowed money against it and put that money to use, you might have a cash on cash return with Barclays of maybe 11%. And then you can go and invest the 60% that you borrowed back in something else. So there are other things that you can leverage, but property is easily the most common asset class and the easiest asset class to leverage Of all of them that I know. And I think that is the main reason that there's such a big advantage with property against other asset classes. And that the reason it's so easy to leverage is because banks believe that they can get their money back. And historically, it's been a, a good asset that, even during times of recession, hasn't dropped more than say 25-30%, certainly with residential property. So generally the banks have have been able, when the loan goes wrong, to take the the property and sell it and get their money back. So for a bank, they've been a a good loan, a good commercial decision, therefore they can offer low rates on them. So um, the big advantage with property, but don't put all your eggs in one basket. Clearly when you start to multiply your investments, especially within property, and and really start to leverage. And then once you've remortgaged, reinvest that money. That is what allows you to really grow the portfolio and grow your balance sheet. I know many investors that will own several million pounds of the property after starting with a relatively small sum, a few thousand pounds. Yes, it takes time. Yes, there needs to be market growth. But it's that leverage and the ability to borrow money that multiplies the returns that you you get from property, uh, and it makes it a very very powerful thing. I mean, imagine if you'd bought ten terraced properties. Yes, you might need three hundred thousand initially, but you'd you'd have a, a an overall return of twenty five percent annually on all those properties. Now, you know the the, the capital growth on those ten properties of a hundred thousand each at five percent would be fifty thousand a year, but then you get all the income, which we were talking about on top as well. And maybe you don't have three thousand to start with, maybe you just have the, the 30 uh, or a little bit less and you need to joint venture with someone. But over time as the values increase you, you usually can remortgage, getting cash back and allowing further investment. So it's extremely leverageable. The other beautiful thing about property is that it is scalable. For me scale with investments is very important. As the years have gone on, I've heard it said many times and it's become a bit trite that your time is your most important asset. And uh, and I didn't really I didn't really live that until let's say 5 years ago when I really started to see that that actually this argument you've only got say 12 14 hours a in the day when you're awake. And this argument that it doesn't matter how much money you've got or what assets you've got or what else you've got or what relationships you've got with people, you've still got the same amount of time, that 12, 14 hours every day when when we're awake. So if you want to do more and you want to achieve more and you want to make more money, you really need to scale your investments and not be swapping your time for money, effectively. So... What's that meant for me? Well, I used to buy individual properties. and Over a period of time, I've scaled that up to bigger and bigger investments. That might be commercial buildings. I like doing cluster flats, which are very, very big HMOs, which are split into flats of six. Over time, as I've grown those investments, it's allowed my, me to use my time a lot more effectively. If I bought five terrace properties and I went and refurbished those and entered them into my portfolio, it would probably take me as much time as buying a a block of 20 flats and refurbishing them or, or doing an office conversion to residential. What you find is as you do bigger buildings or multiple units, the amount of time that you need to spend on each unit is much less. And therefore, you can scale up and you can make a lot more money with the same amount of time. So for me, scale is very, very important. Commercial obviously offers scale, but yields aren't always that good in commercial. But there are some models that that can work. I've seen a a model recently with serviced offices, where there's a much higher percentage return, much higher yield on the investment, which allows commercial investment, it allows you to scale. Obviously, there's more management involved, but it it, it allows a much higher income stream, which allows further leverage, because when the income's higher, the bank's happy to lend more as a percentage of the property value, uh, and it allows you to, to buy more property. So um, that income is, is key to uh, to leverage, to keeping you safe, and, and obviously increasing the amount of money that you've got every month that you can spend. The next thing I really focus on when I'm analysing an investment is testing and measuring. I usually, when I'm doing the initial analysis or getting to understand a new investment, I usually find out about new things from people that I respect. Credible people might talk to me about something and I get interest in it. And when I've spoken to two or three different people and they're doing something similar, I've seen the properties or the asset classes they're buying. I usually wait a little bit. I watch to see what the results are. I don't dive in really quickly. And if it seems to be consistent and seems to work for them, then I usually start small. I'll buy one or two of whatever it is they're investing in. So it might be watches and Rob does Lego, you know, there's some of the newer things we've been investing in. And certainly when I have gone into new property models, um, like buying offices to convert to apartments or maybe into HMOs and into cluster flats, whatever that model is, I I generally start small. I do a few, a test, and then I wait probably at least six months a year until the investment has really started to show its face. It might be longer for for many investments, but I want to see that income start. I want to actually test it, feel it. And I really want to see how that investment relates to me. How well I can manage it and how well it fits into my life because whilst an investment can be really good and can work and can be solid for many people, it doesn't mean to say it's good for everyone because everyone's a little bit different. It needs to, everyone has different knowledge, everyone has different interests, likes, everyone has a different flow. So I need to know that that investment works with me and my understanding and, and what I like doing. So I'll usually wait for the investment to mature a little bit, show its face before jumping in big. Once I've worked out that the income works and the asset class is good, I'll then start to increase the size of it after a year, 18 months. And then I'll usually go in big once I've got two or three. I know it works. I've been through the whole process. I've bought it. I've refurbished it. I've developed it. I've remortgaged it. I've got the tenants in there. I know the thing works and it's solid and I'm not having to spend too much time on it. And then I'll start to go in heavier and heavier and progressively increase the investment over the years. And I like to see the returns and I like to analyse those returns over a number of years because there are always things that pop up later like CapEx, you know, capital expenditure. The example on properties, you're going to have to do refurbs every few years. You're going to have to do planned works, which not everybody factors into their investments. I think it's important. And you really only learn about all of those investments and all of those nuances over a period of time. With watches, you might have to, to polish them and you might have to rotate them. The value could be hit when there's scratches on them or, you know, you need to make sure they've got box and papers. You need to make sure that you've, you've bought a real one. Uh, there are all these things that, that can catch you out along the way. It could be that a watch, suddenly you, you thought you were buying only something that was only released in 500 pieces, but actually it was just 500 pieces that year. I've, I've noticed that with a couple of manufacturers. And actually there are loads of that watch and and the value hasn't gone up very much. And really only time teaches you those little nuances. And I think it's important to stay in something for, you know, a good number of years. I mean, my ideal holding period around investment is, is lifetime because you, you just pick up so much and your gut tells you so much when you look at one of those investments or a new one of that thing that you're going to buy, which tells you whether you're going to make money or not. When you've been in a few few cycles and you've seen how that investment reacts through every cycle, you are so well positioned to make more money out of it when the cycle moves, when when we're in a recession or when we're, we're growing, you know what to buy because you've been in it a long time. It's, it's very important to keep your eye on all of these assets over a long period of time and really understand them. There's a lot of value in it. Wine's another one. Wine can, um, you know, when it's being stored, if it's stored at the incorrect temperature, um, it can go bad or it can react with the cork and, you know, it can, it can become corked. And these are all risks of, of holding different assets and that's something you learn with time. You know, some, there are a lot of foreign investors that buy wine at auctions who haven't necessarily realised that the wine has gone bad and they don't know how to check for that and they don't understand how to, maybe if they're buying some gold, how to test it or a diamond, how to, you know, to, to, to value it properly. You know, it needs to have a GIA certificate or, or similar from a a good germological institute. You need to make sure that the, the colour, the cut, the clarity and the size of the stone are all correct because you get... Three of those that are really good and one that isn't very good and it can hit the value of a diamond massively. But that's only something you, you realise as you get further into it. A good guide to look at is the uh, port. That's a a good way of valuing a, a diamond. And if you want to buy diamonds, always try and buy them used. You know, there are some really good areas uh, around London, you know, maybe you get a Hatton Garden you speak to the guys there. They, um, you know there's a lot of diamonds that you can buy for the right money or maybe you go to Antwerp to find them. Best not to buy them off the high street you know, from your your normal kind of jewelers because they are marked up very, very heavily. But if you buy, buy the best, buy the, the best color and the best clarity, usually that's what's going to go up the most. And that applies to most investment classes. If you, if you go for the best, usually there are a finite number of the best there aren't so many of them. Therefore, usually, depending on what it is, not everything, but a lot of asset classes, those are the types of assets that will increase the most, the best, the ones that are there are few of. And that's what I like to focus on now. The final point I'm going to make is the taxation surrounding an investment. It's very important to understand how you're going to be taxed on an investment. And whilst the tax treatment shouldn't override the investment case, it is important to include this in your analysis. Clearly, there's been a concerted attack on residential property in the last few years. Treasury-based changes have been brought in by George Osborne. There are ways around it. Limited companies look like they're, they're going to be a good way around those tax changes. So it looks like residential property from a taxation point of view should still be an attractive asset. There are some real boons, though, with certain asset classes that don't attract CGT capital gains tax your own home for instance there is no capital gains tax on that so you know for me it just makes absolute sense to buy the biggest house that you you can afford to borrow as much against it that you can afford to you know make sure you've got the income to pay the mortgage you're going to be paying a mortgage of two percent and then when you sell it you're not going to have any capital gains tax now to me that is a a massive benefit if it goes up five percent a year and you've borrowed 75 80% as we we talked about it earlier on you're going to multiply your investments probably in reality it's going to be making you more than 15% a year if you've if you've borrowed 75% of the value and the the capital growth is 5%. So that's a major benefit if if the mortgage interest is only 2 3 even if it's 5% the capital growth over the long term should be higher than the mortgage interest that you're paying which effectively makes the it free your, your home over looking at historical growth figures versus interest rates in the last 15 years, actually most houses have have, have been free and and people have made good money out of their their home and then not pay capital gains tax on it. So I think there's a major benefit there. Watches don't attract capital gains tax, neither do cars, neither does wine, because it's seen, seen as wasting assets. So there's a major taxation advantage with those asset classes. Clearly, if you're doing... If you're trading them and you are buying a lot, um, and of course it's a little bit grey as to what a lot is, but you may then have to pay income tax, so just bear that in mind. So that concludes the second part of my How to Analyze a Deal podcast. We've spoken about leverage and how important it is. I think it's the the overriding takeaway from, from these two podcasts. I think it leverages what's got me you know, the, the furthest probably in, in, in my investing career, the security the cash flow and the, the capital and the, you know, knowing that your money is safe Of course, that must come right at the top as well. They're very important facets, and you get to see how secure an investment is, certainly more over the medium to long term. And talk to people who you respect and people who've been there. That's key. People who have done it for a long time, they're they're usually the ones to talk to. Scalability, again, really important. The leverage allows you to scale, but it's really allowing you, you to use your time better. So buying bigger investments that take less of your time allows you to scale and that starting small, investing, testing, measuring allows you to understand how an investment's really going to react and how it's really going to perform and let it show its face before jumping in big. And of course, the tax around all this is is key. Uh, I always analyse what the taxation is going to be on an investment before I jump in, before I go big on it. Because, you know, you, you certainly have to pay 30 40 50% tax on something. Well, that can halve your return on the investment. So it's a key consideration. I sincerely hope you've got value from this podcast. I certainly have enjoyed delivering it to you and I've enjoyed doing a bit of research and just thinking back over the years, you know, what I've got from some of my investments and what's worked the best. So that's been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. If you want to read more, have a look on www.progressiveproperty.co.uk. I've got my Facebook page and the, the Twitter page at Robin Mark. Thank you very much for listening.